welcome today's edition of Worcester Talking News, brought to you by Worcester News and Equipment for the Blind, with permission of the Worcester News, and recorded on Thursday the 1st of July 2021, here at Colin Chance House, Worcester. I'm Evelyn Brock, editor for this edition, and with me to read the articles is Moira Lowe. Our sound engineering tonight is shared by Alex Gwynne and John Plush. And of course, we're ably supported by members of the admin team led by Carol Hartle. A warm welcome to all readers, especially new ones. I hope everyone enjoys our offerings. It's certainly still good to be back following so many months of lockdown. In addition to news items, you'll hear some useful telephone numbers, including theatres ready for when they all open, readers' letters, birthdays and thought for the week. Remember that obituaries are still included, but following listeners' requests, they're nowadays placed in a different spot following the closing music. So, if you wish to hear them, please stay tuned then. Don't forget that recordings are usually available on podcasts, but at present, talking books are not available on memory sticks, but rather on CDs and tape. Also, do let us know your birthdays so that we can greet you specially when the time comes. This service is free to users, but if you would like to make a voluntary donation, it can be sent to Colin Chance House, Wilds Lane, Worcester, WR51DA. We do like hearing from you, and a message can be left on our answer phone, Worcester 01905767766, or add a note to your wallet. If there is a problem with any aspect of your receiving recordings, please use the answer phone on the number I've just given. So, here we go then. First of all, birthdays. And this week, we greet Ida Hewlett for the 5th of July and Michael Day for the 8th of July. Happy birthday to both of you when your special day arrives. Now some useful telephone numbers. I've already given you that of Colin Chance House, but just repeat it, Worcester 767766. NHS Direct 111. Out of Hours GP Medical Assistance 0300. One two double three two double one, and that's available from six in the evening until eight in the evening. Worcester Hub zero one nine zero five seven six five seven six five. Crime Stoppers zero eight double zero treble five treble one. Worcester County Council here to help. Worcester seven six eight zero five three option three. Community risk team 
involved in fire safety. 0800-032-1155 Nuisance calls for BT and Plusnet, as far as I know, 1572. Worcester Live, Worcester 6-1-1-4-2-7. Malvern Theatres, 01684-892277. And Walking Group for the Visually Impaired, 01684 891-297 or 07920-144614 and lastly Samaritans 116123 and that's a free phone number. Right, we'll go to our headline articles and Moira. Will you start for us? Okay, my first headline is from Friday, June the 25th. To owners urged, be more wary. Brazen car thieves are targeting BMWs as a police officer warns owners of newer models to beware after a series of raids and burglaries. Yesterday, police revealed an arrest has been made in connection with the theft of high-value BMWs across Worcestershire, including in the city. A series of newer model BMWs have been stolen in Worcester, Pershaw and Droitwich in so-called car key burglaries, as well as several keyless thefts using a scanner. DI Dave Knight, South Worcestershire Offender Management and Proactive CID, said... West Mercia police officers from Worcester Proactive CID carried out an arrest on Wednesday, June the 23rd of an adult male in the Durham area on suspicion of vehicle theft. At the same time, house searches were carried out in the Durham and Birmingham area. The male has been released under investigation. West Mercia police have been responding to a spate of thefts of newer model BMWs across South Worcestershire and believe the cars may be being stolen to order, possibly by criminal gangs from outside the area, although detectives are keeping an open mind. BMWs were stolen from Isaacs Way, Droitwich on June the 7th and from Woolmead Row and Brecon Avenue, Worcester, on May the 19th. On May the 11th in Goldcrest Way, Droitwich, two BMWs were stolen from two houses and have yet to be recovered. These two thefts were keyless using a key scanner. Thefts which occur where keys are operated by a keyless entry start and stop system. DI Knight advised drivers who had these types of cars to use a Faraday bag, a form of signal blocking security car key protector which stops the key communicating with the scanner and therefore prevents the vehicle from being stolen. Overnight on June the 17th into June the 18th, another BMW was stolen from Penrice Road, Droitwich. The car has yet to be recovered. This was a car key burglary, where someone enters someone's home, steals the keys and then makes off with the car. Meanwhile, three BMWs and an Audi were stolen from Pershaw High Street on Monday. One of the BMWs was recovered later that morning from Matthias Avenue, Mulvern, and was not believed to have been damaged. The three BMWs, an M5, 
X1 in 3 Series, stolen in Pershaw, along with an Audi A5, were taken after thieves smashed their way into Pershaw Motor Group on the High Street. The M5, the most valuable vehicle valued at 25000 was recovered in a cul-de-sac in Malvern, with the other three heading to the same destination, before being picked up by ANPR cameras heading towards the Sparkbrook area of Birmingham. D.I. Knight said, The great majority of these cars have been stolen in the last couple of months to six weeks within South Worcestershire. We are working hard to identify the suspects committing these crimes. We're also looking at the wider picture to determine why these particular vehicles are being stolen and where they're ending up. We are exploring the possibility they are being stolen to order. Police are also exploring the possibility the offenders may be operating nationally. Those with information can contact West Mercia Police on 101 or Crime Stoppers anonymously on 0800 Right, now, Saturday, June the 26th, and the headline is I was scared and trapped. Wheelchair user calls on drivers to think before you park. A disabled woman has made a tearful plea to selfish drivers after being forced into a busy road because she could get her wheel past she could not get her wheelchair past a parked car Emily Simmons 34 said she felt trapped and panicked about getting home safely she recorded herself in tears blocked behind a parked car in Bromyard Road in a video which has been shared to TikTok. She said, I've just had to go in the road and it's really scary because of someone parking and I can't get through. After the ordeal on Thursday, she's appealing to drivers to have more consideration for wheelchair users. She said... It was terrifying going out into the traffic with cars coming towards me. It's a very busy piece of road. I want to raise awareness of the issue and hopefully make people think a bit more about others. Emily has Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, a type of rare inherited conditions that affect connective tissue and suffers with severe anxiety also. She said, I live in a supported living complex and carers come in to support me. It took a long time to build up the confidence to go out on my own, but I do enjoy the freedom which is so important to my mental health and well-being. She continued, in this situation I had no way of knocking on the owner's door to ask them to move their car, which when someone has been with me before they have been able to do on my behalf. I felt trapped and panicked about getting home safely. I'm not after pity. I just want to raise awareness of the issue and for people to start thinking more of others. She hopes her TikTok video will raise awareness of the difficulties parking on the pavement raises for wheelchair users, people on mobility scooters and parents with pushchairs. She said... Because of someone parking like this, I can't get through. It terrifies me having to go in the road. Please don't park like this. It's just so selfish. 
Think before you park. A spokesman for Worcester City Council said the police can take enforcement action in cases where parking is causing an obstruction. The City Council can take enforcement action if someone parks on a dropped curb, if the property owner has made a request for us to do so. Members of the public can also go to the Worcestershire County Council and request restricted parking areas. And the headline in this article was accompanied by a large picture of the car that caused this situation. To me, it looks like a very large car, but what's more important, it is almost spanning the pavement. There is definitely no room for this lady's quite substantial electronic wheelchair to get past without going into the road. Moira. Okay, my headline is Why Are We Being Left Living in Filth? A resident of a city housing estate says he is furious they are being made to live in filth as he says no one has taken responsibility for clearing rubbish dumped. Craig Cook says the issues have been going on for months at Potter's Close Housing Estate, sharing pictures of the rubbish which includes a television, paint, metal and builder's materials. Mr Cook said he was angry neither Citizen Housing, which manages the estate, or Worcester City Council has cleaned up the rubbish at two locations, next to a wall and in two overflown recycling bins. Citizen Housing and the council have told us they are working to resolve the issues at the estate off Sadler's Walk Brickfields and to get the rubbish taken away. Mr Cook said, We pay a lot of money in surcharges for stuff like this to be cleared. People just want to use it as a dumping group. I don't think it is right we should have to live in filth. It's an eyesore. If you have visitors coming, it's the first thing they see. I contacted the Housing Association and Council nine weeks ago and nothing has been done. We've reported it to the bin men as well. Because it is green recycling bins and people are dumping all sorts of stuff in it, they were refusing to empty it. I don't know how the recycling bins ever ended up there. There shouldn't be any there. Mr Cook said he was further angered that after raising the bins with citizen housing, he claims was asked to ring the council as it would sound better coming from you. He added... I argued, you are my landlord, why should I have to do your work? I don't get paid for doing that. I can't understand why nothing is being done about it. A citizen housing spokesman said, We are sorry to hear about the issue our customer is experiencing. Now we have been made aware of the issue, we will arrange for it to be removed. Recycling bins are the responsibility of Worcester City Council and if customers would like the bins removed then they will need to request this from the council. A Worcester City Council spokesman said We are working with Citizen Housing which is responsible for ensuring their tenants use refuse facilities correctly to resolve these issues. City Council officers visited the Potter's Close estate last Friday and found that the green bins contained a large amount of unrecyclable waste, including slate tiles and building materials. Our team will remove these items and will continue to explore options with citizen housing. Tuesday, June the 29th. The headline, Trapped in Our Homes. 
People living at a retirement housing complex say they have been trapped in their flats for 10 days due to a broken lift. Elderly residents and concerned relatives say they're furious the lifts at Noel Court in Tuffery Close, Worcester, have been broken for so long, leaving people, quote, trapped in their own homes. Olive Price, aged 93, has been at the sanctuary housing property since 2005. She said, Life here is anything but a sanctuary. They should change their name. They offered to move us somewhere else, but I'm not just going to pick up and go. That would be a terrible upheaval, and I have no idea where they would send me or what it would be like. I feel so angry that they've treated us like this. We have no idea when it will be fixed. They haven't told us. Myself and other residents who live on the higher floors are trapped. We can't go to the shops or even to the garden. She continued, I can't use the stairs. I'm frightened I may fall. My balance is no good. I've been relying on my neighbours to bring me my shopping and do the occasional load of laundry as the washing machines are downstairs and only one of those works. One washing machine for 38 flats. It's no good. I am very, very lucky to have such kind, supportive neighbours who help me. They've been marvellous, but they shouldn't have to do this for me. I pay enough to live here. They have just put the rent up by £10, but I can't see how they can justify that when we aren't getting the services we should be. Mrs Price's daughter, June Binion, who lives in Southend-on-Sea, has said that she is worried for her mother being cooped up in the flat by herself. She said, This situation is totally unacceptable. Sanctuary need to step up and start communicating with their residents and start providing an adequate service in line with the amount of rent they're charging. The daughter of a second resident, who does not wish to be identified, says her mother, who had been able to leave their, her flat for 10 days. She said, Sanctuary housing have still not sent anyone to fix the lift, and it's a disgrace. There are residents up there who are infirm and rely on the lift to get out and visit the shops and to attend vital appointments. The residents are unable to get outside for fresh air. Their only means of air being opening a window. Most are having to rely on friends and family to get food and medicines. A spokesman for Sanctuary Housing said, Our external lift contractors immediately attended the scheme when the issue was reported, but were unable to complete the repair due to the need for additional specialist parts. Our local housing team will continue to make regular welfare calls to the residents to provide any extra support they need whilst we await the delivery of the required parts. We're very sorry for the inconvenience the issue with the lift is causing and we share the frustration being felt by the residents. We have been offering the option of temporarily moving into alternative accommodation until the lift is repaired. All the residents asked 
have so far told us they would rather remain in their homes. Moira. Okay, my next headline is Cutting It Fine. A pub and homes on a Worcester road were perilously close to going up in smoke after a worker ripped through electricity mains outside. Properties on this same side of the Pope Iron Road Barbon as the Winning Post pub were left without power or gas from 4pm on Monday until the early hours of Tuesday. The pub has had it worse with the electrical surge melting wires, blowing appliances and creating a burnt plastic stench throughout the premises that was only refurbished during lockdown. It remains without power and the road is closed while emergency repairs take place. Landlord Jim McKeever has been left counting the cost with a full house anticipated for England's Euro 2020 clash with Germany. But while he has had to close and see new seating ripped up for workers to gain access to cables, he is thankful to avoid a far worse fate. He said, everything just went red in the cellar and we had to evacuate the building. They said they would get the power back on in a couple of hours, but 24 hours later we have no power and we still, still don't know when it will be back on. The business has had to close. I had 40 people booked in for the England versus Germany game. He continued, it is very frustrating, but what can we do? We could have all been dead, to be honest. If the housing development workers across the road had not been quick to call the fire brigade, the pub would have burnt down. They cut through the mains and the surge fired back into the pub. The gas meter was bright red and ready to explode. The, writing, the, sorry, the wiring is burned throughout the pub. It is broken in appliances. Workers were on the scene yesterday, but Mr McKeever was frustrated by lack of updates. No one has been to see us for 24 hours, he said. The workers keep telling us they will be here in 20 minutes or half an hour. They are here trying to sort it out, but it's impossible for them. They have been fair. It is not their fault, but it is so slow. I just wish they would keep us informed about what's happening. The surge bounced back as far as ST Automotive, a garage on the opposite side of the road and approximately 100 yards away from the pub. It also remains without power. Owner Simon Tattersfield said, It was a comedy of errors from start to finish. He managed to go through the gas pipe and then the electrics. I was up all night because they said they would have someone out, so I had to be ready to let them in. At 3am, I got a text to say they would be here at 8am. They turned up at 9.30. I don't know what we are going to do. It's been a right old nightmare. Worcester City Councillor Karen Ewing posted on Facebook, I visited residents of Popine Road who had their electric and gas cut off unintentionally by local construction developers. Western Power Distribution has been contacted for comment. And the last one is today, Thursday, July the 1st. And the headline is No Funds to Help Victims. Sexual Abuse Centre Forced to Turn People Away After Financial Cuts. The boss of a Worcester Rape and Sexual Abuse Support Centre says she is heartbroken after having to turn people away due to funding cuts. Jocelyn Anderson announced on Wednesday that the West Mercia Rape and Sexual Abuse Support Centre is no longer able to accept new survivors due to a severe lack of funding. Ms Anderson said, 
I genuinely do not know where people will go for help now. We are the only specialist sexual violence support centre in Herefordshire and Worcestershire. It's heartbreaking to turn people away, but we really do not have a choice. It's a very worrying thing. We know that many people who have experienced rape or any other form of sexual violence are extremely vulnerable. Many express suicidal thoughts and they need and deserve long-term specialist support. Last year, the service supported more than 2,300 survivors face-to-face and received more than 1,700 new referrals. As at May the 31st, there were 435 people waiting for counselling and average about 60 new referrals per month to the counselling service alone. Women, men, children and their families who need support to come to terms with what has happened to them. She said, The therapy service is at breaking point, which is why we have decided to close the waiting list. But we will continue to work with everyone currently in service and on the waiting list. We have cut our services to the bone, but can no longer ethically continue to accept clients on the list. The counselling service is funded primarily through the Rape Support Fund, which comes from the Ministry of Justice, and outside of this is reliant on charitable donations. We simply do not have enough funding to support the volume of clients being referred in to us, which is why when so many come through health and social services, it's difficult to understand why we don't receive any funding from any local authority or local health agency. She continued, This has been a very difficult decision to make. Sexual violence impacts one in five women, one in eight men and one in 20 children. Survivors need access to early intervention by trained sexual violence specialists. Adult survivors are waiting in the region of 18 months to access counselling support. This is unacceptable and it is simply not ethical for us to take on any more referrals when the current waiting list is already so long. If we had long-term sustainable funding at appropriate levels, we would be able to dedicate our time to providing the much-needed support that our clients need and deserve. Instead, we waste time scrabbling for funding, arguing for longer-term funding settlements, and are unable to make long-term decisions about how to develop our service because we never know where next year's money is coming from. Worcester MP Robin Walker said he would be happy to speak to the Ministry of Justice, adding some of the funding for the centre comes from the Office of the Police and Crime Commissioner. He said, I am certainly happy to take this up with the Ministry. The last time I spoke with them, I said I would be happy to take it up with the government. I am not aware of this funding being cut, so I would have to look into the issue further. Right, now the thought for the week from Moira. This is from Acts 8 
verses 35 to 37. Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptised? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And now a Worcester sport item. And the headline here, and it's about cricket this time, is back in form. Oliveira's 50 helps Rapids surge past Foxes to make it back-to-back Vitality Blast victories. Brett D'Oliveira, there's a name to conjure up memories in cricket, and Ricky Wessels powered Worcestershire Rapids to a seven-wicket victory over Leicestershire Foxes in the Vitality Blast as they climbed back into the top four of the North group. The opening pair put on 103 as they chased down a 157 target with five balls to spare. D'Oliveira achieved a career-best score of 69 on what was his 100th T20 game for the Rapids. The Foxes were put into bat and Josh Inglis and Scott Steele scored 34 from the opening four overs, but then three wickets fell in nine balls. Scott Steele, 13, edged Dylan Pennington to Ben Cox before the bowler then removed Inglis, at 21, with the fifth ball of the same over. It became 38-3 in the next over, when Leicestershire captain Colin Ackerman, zero, was also bowled after going for another big hit. The wickets continued to tumble after spinner Ish Sodi came into the attack as Aaron Lilly, six, holed out to Ricky Wessels at long on and then Darrell Mitchell struck as Rishi Patel, 14, picked out Ross Whiteley at deep mid-wicket. Louis Kimber and Lewis Hill put on 60 in five and a half overs, with the latter hitting three sixes in the space of four balls before Dwashuis returned to have Kimber, 23, caught at deep mid-wicket by Whiteley. Hill went on to to complete a 28-ball half-century with four sixes and two fours before he hit Dewash's delivery straight to Darrell Mitchell at cover. The Rapids' reply was dominated by D'Oliveira and Wessels. They negotiated an opening four overs of spin from Callum Parkinson and Ackerman and the entire power play without being parted in scoring 42 to lay the foundations for their side. D'Oliveira, in particular, timed the ball sweetly and he completed his second successive half-century in the competition of 40 balls with six boundaries. The stand was worth 106 when Wessels, after making 46 from 34 overs, was caught at deep mid-wicket off Parkinson, who bowled his four overs for 20 runs. Jake Libby, 
11, was caught off a top edge at third man against Naveen Ulhaq and Oliveira's excellent knock ended when he pulled Gavin Griffiths to deep mid-wicket. Rapids captain Ben Cox then came to the crease and got the final four runs in the last over to secure the victory. Well done, everybody. Now, letters. Your turn, letters. OK. This is um, a comment from the letters page. Missed school time needs a fix. Children missing school time is never a good thing, but it is even worse now after hours missed in school since the pandemic began. That is why the news more than 1,600 pupils off school and self-isolating in our county is deeply concerning. The issue is one of a number that new health secretary Sahid Javid thrown into the deep end after the departure of Matt Hancock in recent days, needs to address. The county MP has pledged to address the issue with the scrapping of the class bubbles that force groups to self-isolate if one tests positive. The government will know that when the system came in, it was part of helping to stop the spread of COVID and saving lives. The rumoured favoured system by ministers that could be implemented in the autumn is daily testing. For a change like that, ministers would need to be sure it would work as there are concerns tests don't always spot infection. An alternative is the vaccination of children, but that is yet to be approved and if it is, how many parents would take up that option? Well, the letters page I have in front of me is absolutely full of comments about the Matt Hancock situation, so I don't really have much choice. Um, the first major letter is from a Dr Dan Boatwright of Pinvin. Why are we held to different standards? Dear Editor, I sent this letter to my MP. I'm furious about the double standards of this government. Why am I held to a higher standard than this government? Dear Mr Huddleston, says his letter, yet again I find myself being held to a different standard as government um, to government officials. If I, as a teacher, was to have an affair with a co-worker and then it be caught on CCTV, I'm not sure I would find my head releasing a press release saying that his he accepts my apology and a line is drawn under the matter. Why am I being held to a different standard than government officials? Why do I have to have a higher standard of integrity than the people running this country? I'm also not entirely convinced that there would not be an investigation into the hiring of the co-worker if I had been involved in their employment and then was caught on camera kissing and groping them. We can say that the systems were followed, etc, etc. But if something looks dodgy and the perception of wrongdoing is there, you lose confidence of the people and it adds to the mistrust of your behaviours. Any reassurance that all actions were above board needs to come from an independent investigation, not the words of the government. How can you say that there is scrutiny of actions if there is no actual investigation? The CCTV 
of the behaviour of Mr Hancock in DHSC with his aide is clearly inappropriate. It's also a clear breach of Covid regulations and quite possibly the law of the time, a law which Mr Hancock pushed through Parliament, something that you must be quite aware of and needs to be fully investigated. This episode continues to damage the reputation and the credibility of the government and, dare I say it, your political party. If this continues, at what point will we stop listening to your party at all? Do you want to test that? Chesham and Amisham was not just the result of some determined leafleteers. Okay, I've got an article. Um, Memorial is a place to sit and remember. It's fair to say our online readership were not in agreement with the letter from Joe Amos in which he objected to people sitting on the war memorial outside Worcester Cathedral as if it were a park bench, showing an overt and blatant lack of respect for our war dead. Chris Cross responded, What a lot of jingoistic hot air. Many of us are descended from people who served in the First or Second World Wars and in more recent conflicts. It isn't disrespectful that people eat, talk and enjoy life in this place, just as our fallen would have done if they'd been here. My granddad would probably have made a rollie, sat down and smoked it on those steps, grateful for a moment to rest. Fake outrage personified. If you genuinely are so worried about where people are eating their lunches, fundraise for a bench or two. Libra Girl 001 posted, Sad that this gentleman thinks that people sitting on the steps of the memorial is sacrilegious. That claim is akin to saying that they are profaning the sacred. It is always possible that some people who sit there are taking time to reflect on those to whom the memorial is dedicated. Indeed, some might even be thinking their own past relatives lost in the conflicts. Not everyone is a hooligan or disrespectful, and the closeness of the cathedral will confer additional peace of mind to those in contemplation. Mayor Red 7292 added, Well said. It seems poignant that this memorial is integrated into our local life, and if someone stops to reflect on its meaning, then so much the better. Actor Non Verba posted, I'll remember Joe's comments the next time I'm sat on a memorial bench, enjoying the view before eating my sarnies, and then wrapping myself in a union jack and singing Land of Hope and Glory to demonstrate what a spiffing good patriot I am. Joe Cal said, I myself have sat on that memorial, eating my lunch, thinking of the chaps that this memorial represents. I have also sat on the floor at memorials in Poland and France. I have sat contemplating at the graves of my loved ones. A memorial is a place to sit, think, remember, relax, feel the grounding you feel in the presence of great people. I would rather my grandkids have a picnic on my grave and a game of rounders than sit and weep. Fig Bat Hob Ned added, Surely, if this was never built to be stood or sat on, it would have been built sloped like a pyramid. I'd understand if it were being used by skateboarders or winos, but it's not. For all you know, those people could be descendants of loved ones lost in the war, perhaps commemorating that person's birthday or something. The polite notice you mentioned should read, Please take a moment to sit on our memorial and reflect on those that lost their lives fighting for our country.
Like to know, agreed. Surely that's what these memorials are for, for people to sit and remember the sacrifice made for the freedom to sit on those steps. Otherwise it just becomes a one-day-year monument to all those who lost their lives. It's a fantastic use for it. Leatrice posted, Delighted to see so many comments supporting the integration of the war memorial into people's daily lives. I have fond memories from my childhood in Oxfordshire 60 years ago of old folks stopping for a bit of a sit and a quick smoke on the steps of our local war memorial. And these were people whose brothers, fathers and so on were commemorated on it. Kern Wolf concluded... Turning these monuments into some kind of sterile necropolis is only going to remove them further from people's thoughts. It would be interesting to know if any veterans have a view on this, though in my experience they tend to be a lot less precious about this kind of thing. Thank you, Moira. And Moira's article read there provides a neat segue for me into one of Mike Grunday's Worcester memories, articles, this being breathing new life into 21st century city. Worcester enjoyed a significant commercial and economic renaissance through the 1980s and 90s. The dramatic reversal in fortunes for the faithful city came in the wake of the 1960s redevelopment disasters and the doom and gloom of the 1970s recession, which saw so many of Worcester's shops, offices and factories lying dormant. The city scene then presented a virtual forest of for sale notices or to let signs. The keystone of the Worcester Renaissance was to be the Crown Gate shopping development of the 1990s, an investment in the city's well-being by the Crown Estate, the commission which handles all the Queen's property holdings and investment. By the 1980s, the Centrovincial Company, creators of the 1970s Blackfriars Square shopping precinct, saw this as having been a folly and put forward plans to remove what many considered a scar on the city's shopping scene. Fortunately, Providence stepped in, literally on a regal scale. The Crown Estate agreed to provide what became the necessary £80 million injection to carry out the project. Named Crowngate and becoming a joint development with Worcester City Council, which owned much of the earmarked land in the Deansway Bull Entry area. Demolition and construction work began in earnest. The public was informed of the huge benefits of Crowngate, which it would bestow three multiple stores, more than 50 shops, offices, restaurants, a 750 space multi story car park, and a central bus station a real boon to public transport in a city where bus terminals had been haphazardly scattered. The scheme also proved the saviour of the former Countess of Huntingdon Chapel, once condemned to demolition by the City Council in the 1960s. The Crown Estate came to the aid of a local voluntary trust and helped considerably in the restoration of the chapel and its conversion to Huntingdon Hall. Crowngate was officially opened by the Duke and Duchess of Gloucester in April 1992, immediately expanding Worcester's main shopping centre by a third. The effect was dramatic by strongly revitalising the heart of the faithful city as a place to shop and crowning Worcester's commercial renaissance. 
Another smaller but nevertheless impressive contribution to the city's renaissance was made by the Reindeer Court shopping concourse, tastefully developed between the Shambles, New Street and Milchipen Street, and harnessing the coaching entrance of the former historic Reindeer Inn. The county and city councils also helped enormously to make the shopping heart of Worcester more people-friendly. This was through extensive pedestrianisation, the paving over and banishing of most traffic along the High Street, Shambles, Angel Place and parts of Broad Street, Pump Street and Fish Street. The Renaissance was also bolstered by a considerable blossoming of Worcester's population, from 75,000 to nearer 100,000. This was by the development of two large expansion zones, St Peter the Great in the south and the so-called Warnden villages to the east. The last two decades of the 20th century also saw the long overdue arrival for traffic choke Worcester of a vital second river bridge over the Severn and three quarters of an outer ring road system. The first decade of the 21st century has seen further enhancements to the face of Worcester, including significant landscape improvements to the riverside and to the main parks at Cripplegate, Gellivelt, Fort Royal and Brickfields. And the visual progress continues on a very large scale, with the restoration and magnificent conversion of the 18th century Royal Infirmary into the city campus of the University of Worcester and the development of the Hive Library Complex. Particularly impressive is the external restoration of the Infirmary's Jenny Lind Chapel, now to be seen in its full glory after decades of being obliterated by hospital buildings. Now some articles. So I'll ask Moira to start. Okay, so um, this restoration lifts tower off risk list. A historic city structure is no longer deemed in danger after it was removed from a heritage risk list. Worcester Cathedral's 700-year-old Edgar Tower, which has gone through years of painstaking restoration, was removed from this year's Council Heritage at Risk Register after five years and is no longer seen as a major concern. Val Floy, Chief Operating Officer at Worcester Cathedral, said, We are absolutely delighted to hear that the Edgar Tower has been removed from the Council's Heritage at Risk list. The project to restore the tower was a lengthy one, with scaffolding up on site for a number of years and teams of skilled workers spending many hours meticulously conserving this important ancient building brick by brick. It's fantastic that we were able to preserve an ancient structure that would otherwise have been at risk of collapse. The poor condition of the existing structure and the fragility caused by earlier phases of repair work, combined with the exposed condition to the prevailing weather, led Historic England to add the Edgar Tower to its Heritage at Risk Register in 2016. The medieval gatehouse is one of the few that has survived largely unaltered since it was built as the gateway to Worcester Cathedral's College Green in the mid-14th century. The tower replaced an earlier stone gateway built in the early 1200s by order of King John, who is buried in the cathedral. It's a fascinating building and interestingly houses the oldest schoolroom in continuous use in England, said Mrs Floyd. Our skilled in-house team of stonemasons have led the restoration work. 
We're delighted that we've been able to restore Edgar Tower to its former glory, whilst also preserving it for the future. She continued, We're so very grateful to all of our supporters who donated to our Make Your Mark campaign, where they could sponsor a brick in the tower and have their initials carved into it, and to Historic England for their funding of the project. Going forward, we are now starting to look into restoring the tower's gates, but that's another project for another day. For now, we're just thrilled to have achieved this important milestone. Now an article on travel and Worcester. Travel puts case to MPs. Hundreds of people from across England have attended a protest in support of the travel industry ahead of the government's latest announcement on restrictions for holidaymakers. Staff from Worcester Travel Agent Spires Travel were amongst those lobbying on College Green, Westminster, on Wednesday, urging the importance of clear and concise guidelines for the industry. Paul Knapper, owner of the agency on Deansway, said, We have had 15 months with zero income. If the government continue to restrict travel, we need specific sector support. We need more clarity on the decisions made around the traffic light system. Organised by nine different companies within the industry, the Travel Day of Action saw representatives from around the UK turn up in support. Mr Napper said, It was great to see many people from across the travel industry, including travel agents, tour operators, pilots, cabin crew and airport staff, from companies like British Airways and EasyJet, come together and lobby the government. We are asking for specific sector support and expanded green list. We managed to arrange a meeting with our MP for Worcester, Robin Walker, who was very understanding and sympathetic to the issues we're all facing. He advised he will be writing to the Global Task Force to get across the issues raised. The demonstration set out to highlight issues the industry has suffered from during the pandemic. Mr Napper said over the course of the day, protesters managed to arrange meetings with a string of MPs to express concerns. He said, before this, we couldn't seem to get our point across, but now 60 MPs are fully aware of our situation. Hopefully this might change now and things will look brighter for us. Ahead of the government's latest announcement, he said, we're not holding out too much hope for it. Whatever we hear on the grapevine, we hope those places will get added. Malta has had only 13 cases over seven days and vaccinated 70% of the population. In comparison, we've had 10,000 cases and the government still isn't letting us travel there. Kelly Stanley, owner of Kelly's Travel, said it was very emotional to see the travel industry reunited as one yesterday. I'm very proud. An arrogant ex-Worcester student is behind bars after he was branded a predator by the woman he sexually assaulted in a pub car park. Former University of Worcester student Samuel Ringer was cleared of a city rape but convicted of another sexual assault in Derbyshire, groping his unresponsive victim while telling her she was just playing hard to get. 
The 22-year-old defendant was jailed for 27 months by Judge Nicholas Cartwright at Worcester Crown Court. In a retrial in April, the former sports and exercise student was cleared of a rape and a sexual assault upon another woman at her flat in Worcester City Centre on January the 16th, 2018, after both had been drinking at Bushwhackers. The suited defendant, the son of a senior police officer based in Nottingham, stood still a moment in the dock, seemingly in shock. Judge Cartwright told Ringer of Longfield Line Elkston, There has been no remorse whatsoever on your part. Only minutes before Ringer was jailed, the victim of his unwanted advances faced him over a video link and spoke of the profound impact, both psychological and financial, of the assault against her on July 12, 2018. She said, I believe Sam is a sexual predator who will go to extreme lengths to get what he wants. Ringer, who had no previous convictions, denied the assault, only to be convicted by a jury at Hereford Crown Court in December 2019. The victim had faced a delay in seeing justice done, forced to await the outcome of the Worcester rape trial, an offence of which Ringer was acquitted in April. Reading out her damning victim personal statement and fighting back tears, the young woman who cannot be identified said, He knew what he was looking for. I believe he planned this from the moment he first saw me. She went on to describe his treatment of her as disrespectful and disgusting. Ringer had been 19 when he carried out the sexual assault and the victim had already declined his offer of a lift home and was waiting for a taxi. The court heard Ringer touched her sexually and tried to kiss her, although she tried to avoid him. Despite being told his advances were unwanted, he then touched her under her clothes. Judge Cartwright described how Ringer's assault had made the victim feel vulnerable and frightened. She had to leave the company she worked for and the attack had affected her relationship with her boyfriend after she told him what Ringer had done. Judge Cartwright said there had been a significant degree of planning by Ringer and he had been testing the water by touching the victim inappropriately throughout the evening. And now something of a concern about our heritage of beautiful landscape. Trees could be felled by disease. Up to 20% of trees on the Malvern Hills could be felled amid a national disease crisis. Tree safety surveys are currently being carried out across the hills and commons with ash dieback threatening up to 80% of ash trees nationally. Ash trees make up around 20% of the trees under the Trust's care, with trees near the roads, car parks and properties across the hills being surveyed to monitor the spread of the disease. Those trees identified as being severely affected will need tree surgery and possible felling in the autumn for safety. Jonathan Bills, Conservation Manager from the Malvern Hills Trust, said... For the second autumn in a row, we'll be dealing with the most badly affected ash trees for public safety and there will be some trees next to highways and properties that will be felled. We're devastated to be losing any ash trees from the MHT estate. The impacts of ash dieback over the next five to ten years are going to be significant in the Malvern Hills and Commons landscape. 
Evidence suggests that between 60 to 80% of the UK's ash will be lost to the disease. The loss of this species will have a significant effect on both the local landscape character and the ecology of the area. MHT will be planting replacement trees where possible and allowing nature to replace trees through natural regeneration. As a charity with 1,200 hectares of land under our care, we're facing huge financial pressures as the disease takes hold and more practical management is needed in response. Many of the ash trees are on steep slopes near the, to roadsides, requiring specialist and experienced contractors to safely remove them. This is expensive work at approximately £400 per tree. Infected trees can become brittle and likely to fail. So the removal of trees near to highways and properties is essential. Ash dieback, which was first identified in the UK in 2012, has spread across the country. It causes the wilting of leaves, shoots, to die back and often the death of the tree. Authorities state that eradicating the disease is not possible because it's caused by a fungus and that's airborne and cannot therefore be controlled. The Trust is asking local people to report ash trees on the Trust's land which are badly affected and are near to highways or properties. The Trust is also asking for donations to help support the response to tree disease. More information can be found on the Trust's website www.malvernhills.org.uk forward slash get involved forward slash supporting our work. Okay, I've got an article from Toby Porter, the Chief Executive of Acorns Hospice. Last week was an important one for children's hospice and palliative care services. Every year the National Spotlight shines on this lifeline care and support as part of Children's Hospice Week. It is the only week in the year dedicated to raising awareness and funds for children's hospice and palliative care services across the UK and the seriously ill children and young people they support. Acorns was one of 54 proud children's hospice care providers to lend their voice to this campaign from Together for Short Lives. The theme this year has been pushed to the limits. It's a message that will resonate with many families we support across Worcestershire who have been stretched to capacity caring for life-limited and life-threatened children in some of the most extraordinary times. It's certainly one our hospice and family services team at Acorns for the three counties can relate to. At the same time, it's befitting for our amazing supporters who continue to push themselves to the limit to raise funds for Acorns, so we aren't pushed to ours. Latest figures from Together for Short Lives show that the number of children with complex care needs is rising meaning children's hospices like Acorns will need to raise even more money to provide essential care and support. Two-thirds of the £27,000 we need every day to run our services comes directly from donations and fundraising by the local community. I cannot emphasise enough the vital role these wonderfully generous people play in enabling us to support families on what is a truly unimaginable journey. 
For all the inspiration and fundraising ideas you need, visit our website at acorns.org.uk. Now an article from two days ago, Tuesday the 29th, a million landmark for grabbing jabs. One million coronavirus vaccinations have been delivered across Herefordshire and Worcestershire following the grab-a-jab weekend. Health chiefs thanked the public for their help with walk-in vaccination centres in Worcester and Bromsgrove, helping to hit the milestone. Simon Trickett, Chief Executive Officer for NHS Herefordshire and Worcestershire Clinical Commissioning Group, said, Delivering one million vaccines is a fantastic achievement and is testament to the dedication and determination of our hard-working NHS staff, volunteers, partners and all those who have taken up their offer of a vaccine across the two counties. We've still got work to do to ensure that everyone over 18 can receive their vaccination in the coming weeks as we approach the proposed lifting of the final government restrictions and we can get on with enjoying the summer. I encourage everyone who's eligible to come forward either by booking online or by calling 119. As part of supporting the National Grab-A-Jab weekend, vaccinations were ramped up and offered at 18 locations across the two counties, including walk-ins at the Artrix in Bromsgrove and the Guildhall in Worcester. Dr Gemma Moore, Clinical Director at Southwest Healthcare and GP Partner at Ombersley Medical Centre, said, People from all walks of life have passed through our doors this weekend to receive their first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. It's been a fantastic event with the enthusiasm and excitement of our local community providing this vaccine. It's really changing lives. We'd like to extend our thanks in particular to the staff and volunteers at the Guildhall in Worcester who've gone above and beyond to help set up our pop-up site in their historic building as well as our vaccinators and site teams who've worked throughout the weekend to make it happen. People who have not yet taken up the vaccine offer can still visit nhsuk forward slash conditions forward slash coronavirus COVID-19 forward slash coronavirus vaccination or call 119 to book an appointment for their COVID-19 vaccination. Multi-million pound work to build a new supermarket in the city has started. The work will see a new little supermarket built on part of the JVM casting site off Droitwich Road. Contractor Bennyman Construction are now on site working on the first phase, which will see JVM's car park moved and rebuilt to make way for the new supermarket. The work is expected to take around 10 months, with the new store opening next summer. Around 40 full and part-time jobs would be created. Paul Group, director at Ashfield Land, said, With so much uncertainty around because of COVID, it's excellent to be pressing the button on an important and significant investment for Worcester. This is an ideal example of Ashfield Land delivering regeneration through smart land use and committed partnering. Working with JVM and Little GB, and supported by an excellent design, 
planning and construction team, we're transforming this site into an asset for the city and something fit for the future. As part of the plan by Ashfield Land, which received planning permission last year, a small underused part of the casting specialist's factory would be demolished and move its staff car park to the side to make way for the new supermarket. This would be the city's third little, with stores already open in Blackpool and Newtown Road. The 2,200 square metre supermarket would include a bakery and self-service checkouts. A 110-space car park, including six disabled bays and eight parent and child spaces, would also be built. The existing car park to the front of JBM Castings would be moved to the side and a total of 125 car parking spaces would be provided for the factory. Rachel Hargreaves, Regional Head of Property at Lidl, said, There's been much anticipation for this new Lidl store and it's great that we are now in a position to break ground and start construction. We are extremely grateful for all the support that we have received so far and would like to thank everyone for their patience and understanding whilst we enter this next phase of the development. Carl Murcott, director at JVM Casting, said, Worcester is our home and this, dis- this reorganisation and regeneration of the site will guarantee our future here for many years to come. This scheme allows us to upgrade our site and face forwards with confidence. Now a report on an ongoing trial at Worcester Crown Court. The headline is Accused at Attack Scene. All three alleged attackers accused of attempted murder following a baseball bat and machete attack accept they were present at the scene of the violence. Usman Multani, his younger brother Kasim Multani and Shehenul Alam all deny attempted murder, grievous bodily harm with intent and violent disorder following the alleged attack in Wilds Lane, Worcester. Awais Salim suffered a fractured skull, a bleed on the brain, a gash to his face near the eye and injuries to his hand and buttock during an attack at around 1am on November 24, 2019. Graphic details emerged of his injuries at a hearing last week. A staff nurse ringing police to tell them half Mr Salim's face was hanging off and that the injuries he had suffered were life-changing and life-threatening. CCTV footage from Worcestershire Royal Hospital's A&E department showed Mr Salim enter the reception area covered in blood and holding a gash on his face. Witnesses were due to be called at the ongoing trial at Worcester Crown Court yesterday. But one of the defence barristers was too ill to attend court or appear over a live link, and so the jury had to be sent home. Usman Multani, 27, of Westminster Road, Ronxwood, Worcester. Kasim Multani, 23, also of Westminster Road and Alam, 31, of Ivor Road, Spark Hill, Birmingham, all deny they took part in the attack. Phil Bradley, QC, prosecuting, told the jury the Multani brothers were arrested in Birmingham four days after the attack. He said he understood that Kasim and Usman al-Multani's case was that they were present at the time of the violence, but denied they were involved in the attack. 
Alam was arrested two days after the attack. In a prepared statement, he said he was asked to drive to Worcester for a favour and paid £40. Mr Bradley told the jury, all three defendants accept presence at the scene of the attack. The principal issue you will have to consider in each of their cases is whether they participated in the attack upon Owais Salim. You may feel that the most important issue in this case is the identity of the perpetrators of the savage attack on Mr Salim. The trial continues. A serious crash caused a motorway in Worcestershire to be closed for more than five hours. The crash at around 5.45 last Friday involved seven vehicles, including a lorry and a motorbike. Also involved were a van and four cars, with the crash closing the entire M5 between Junction 5 at Droitwich and Junction 6 for Worcester. The crash saw both the southbound and northbound carriageways closed completely to allow emergency vehicles access to the site. To make matters worse, the disruption coincided with heavy rain and thunder, which saw the M42 flooded and closed late on Friday night. After an air ambulance landed to remove a seriously injured casualty, the northbound carriageway was soon reopened. There was only one casualty reported by the ambulance service, who said they were taken to hospital for their injuries. Five hours on from the crash, hundreds of people remained trapped on the southbound side as police continued to investigate the crash site. Drivers were still stuck in queues past 10pm that night as police and traffic officers attempted to turn round vehicles at the back to allow a safe route off. A tweet from West Mercia Police at 9.30pm said M5 southbound junction 5 to 6 remains closed whilst we continue collision investigation work. We are working hard to try and reopen as soon as possible, looking at around 10.30. Tweets from the scene appear to show that the final motorists started to move from the scene at around 11pm, having been on the carriageway for six hours or more. The road was not fully reopened until 1am, with drivers fortunate to have missed it, still facing a two-hour diversion to get around the crash. During the chaos, stranded drivers took to Twitter to vent their frustrations, with many asking why it had taken so long to get vehicles moving again. The next article for me is Jailed for Assault on Sleeping Boy. A disgusting paedophile from Worcester recorded himself sexually assaulting a sleeping boy. Inyas Navikas was jailed for 30 months at Worcester Crown Court, for filming the sleeping child as he sexually assaulted him. The sex offender also filmed other male children. The 39-year-old of Warburetum Road, Worcester, further admitted making indecent photographs of children, 422 Category A, 188 Category B and 747 at Category C. In total, he had over 10,000 images, of which around 70% may have been indecent, but officers stopped counting when they reached 1,000. The dad admitted sexual assault of the unidentified child, aged under 13, estimated between 8 and 12 years old, between July 1st and November 27th last year. Neither the boy nor his family are aware the attack even happened. Navikas refused to give details to police about the identity of the boy he assaulted. When told of this, the judge said, 
Of course not. Any parent would be outraged, disgusted and might seek some retribution. The defendant, who was fired immediately from his job when the offences came to light, also admitted possession of ten prohibited images of a child. The court proceedings were relayed to him via a Lithuanian interpreter. Ian Ball, prosecuting, said a search warrant was executed at the defendant's then address, a flat in London Road, Worcester, on November the 27th last year. The images, which showed children aged between 7 and 13 years, in discernible pain and distress, were found on his Samsung mobile phone. The police stopped counting once they got to a 1,000 images, but there were many more. Navikas had also searched for images of young boys. The police were able to identify the defendant as having sexually assaulted the boy because of clothes found at his home, which also appeared in the video. Lee Egan, defending, asked that any prison sentence be suspended, arguing that his client could be rehabilitated in the community. He said, the sexual assault is reprehensible, but he hasn't crossed the line into that type of contact offence where the child was aware of what he was doing. He added, he's lost his partner, his friends, his work. He was immediately fired. He tells me he's lost everything. Judge James Burbage, QC, jailed the defendant for 30 months, half of which he will serve in custody and half on licence in the community. A sexual harm prevention order was made for an indefinite period, which controls his use of internet-enabled devices which must retain their search history. He must notify a police officer from the Public Protection Unit if he uses any such device and make it available for inspection. Novikas must also sign the sex offender register for an indefinite period. Um, Councillors are expected to approve major plans to build a new bridge across the River Severn in Worcester next week. Worcestershire County Council's Planning Committee will be meeting to discuss multi-million pound plans to build the new walking and cycling bridge across the River Severn between Gallivelt Park and the old Capex landfill site. Council planning officers have recommended the plan is approved when the committee meets at County Hall next Tuesday. The cost of the bridge alone will be around £5.8 million, with £4 million coming from Worcestershire County Council, £820,000 from Worcester City Council and a million pounds from the government's getting building fund money allocated to the county. Cabinet papers from March said the bridge would most likely be built by the end of next year, but the latest planning papers say the bridge should be operational by spring 2023. County Hall has the final say on the new bridge, but has been working in partnership with the City Council on the project. The bridge would be just under a mile from the City's Sabrina Bridge and around two miles from Diglis Bridge, the success of which both councils are hoping to emulate. There are roughly double the number of homes within 500 metres of the proposed bridge than in Diglis, which would mean more people could use the new bridge. The council expects around 400,000 walking trips and 100,000 cycling trips to be made across the bridge every year. A report from the council's planning officers said the key objective of the scheme is to encourage walking and cycling through the provision of new infrastructure, including a river crossing. 
This would encourage a mode shift from cars, where journeys would be quicker on foot or by bicycle, and additional walking and cycle trips, particularly leisure trips, would occur. And the planning committee meets next Tuesday from 10 o'clock. And now an article I'm glad to be able to read if it can at all help the person concerned. Mum's plea to survive. A mother is in a race against time to raise enough money for potentially life-saving treatment in the next two weeks after being told she has only two months left to live. Lauren Maddock, 28, has been fighting hard since she was diagnosed with stage 3 triple negative breast cancer, but she's now been told she has exhausted all treatment options available on the NHS. She has been trying to raise £50,000 for pioneering therapy in Mexico and she's made one last desperate plea after discovering she has only weeks rather than months left. It's Lauren's last shot at being able to see seven-year-old daughter Penny and four-year-old son Arthur grow up. We reported she had less than six months to live earlier this month but more recent tests show her prognosis to be more precarious. Her Facebook post read, I need life-saving treatment for incurable metastatic triple negative cancer, which had spread rapidly. We intend to treat me in Mexico in two weeks' time. I need to start the course immediately as we have a two-month prognosis. Please share this with every contact in your contact book. This is a matter of urgency. Please do not ignore this. The post continued. We shouldn't be arranging funerals for a 28-year-old single mum because money couldn't be raised to save her life. There's enough money in this world to ensure I can be a mum to Penny and Arthur. I've exhausted myself trying to find alternatives and supplements, etc. I'm telling you all, I can feel my body giving up. I feel like I'm dying now and have felt this way for a week. Help me if you can. I'll actually pay back every dime because my story will be a success. I've written four chapters so far. Please, I'm desperate. I don't want anyone else to be the comforting arms for my children telling them mummy's dead. Please help save my life. I'm doing all I can 24-7. Share this, please. We're desperate. Lauren was first diagnosed with cancer in November 2019. You can donate to Lauren's fundraising campaign by visiting her Just Giving page. It's a desperate plea, isn't it? Yes. A group of hospice healthcare staff has taken on one of the county's ultimate team trials this summer. Members of St Richard's Hospice Living Well Services team will be cycling, walking and rowing in the popular Paddle, Plod and Pedal event, which will see groups completing approximately 35 miles route on Sunday, August the 15th. The intrepid adventurers will paddle boats along the Avon from Pershaw to Tewkesbury, walk on to Sevenstoke, then take to the saddle to pedal the remainder of the route back to the start. The head of St Richard's Living Well Services said... As a team, we are proud to provide free care to our patients and we are grateful to all those volunteers and fundraisers who ultimately make this possible. 
After an intense 15 months pivoting from a face-to-face to a virtual service, ensuring no one is alone, the team is keen to come together and rise to the personal challenge that this event provides. It's also a chance for the team to have some fun and laughter as they support each other to make a difference for the hospice. Staying healthy and feeling good are more important than ever. St Richard's is inviting teams of six to eight people to participate in the event and raise much-needed funds to support its valuable work. Entry is free. Participants pledge to raise 200 plans or more, each towards hospice care. Fundraising help and support is available for all those taking part. Rhea Simons, fundraiser at St Richard's Hospice, said, Our annual Paddle, Plod and Pedal event is a fantastic day out for those who want to challenge themselves in a fun and team-spirited way. It's an all-day challenge but not a race and hugely enjoyed by those taking part. Hospice care is free for everyone and therefore raising vital funds to support our work is at the heart of such challenges. We're really grateful to all those who get involved, including our very own Living Well team. To find out more, visit strichards.org.uk forward slash event forward slash paddle plod pedal 2021 or... Call the fundraising team on 01905 And what I think will be our last article for tonight, work starts on X Club. And as someone who lives in St John's, this really makes me happy. Work to remove an eyesore, former city nightclub, has finally started after years of delays. The derelict former Zigzags nightclub in St John's in Worcester has been falling into further decay since closing more than 20 years ago. Proposals to transform the building have been hit by dozens of delays over the years, with plans coming and going and deals falling through. But now work looks finally set to have started to demolish the city eyesore before it's replaced. The most recent proposals for the former nightclub would see apartments built alongside a plan to keep the ground floor, including the old Cordell store, as retail space. Councillor Richard Udall, who represents St John's, said, Clearly, whatever happens on the site, it's either going to be as previously applied for or they can make another application, so we'll wait and see what happens. Progress with it being demolished is fantastic news. I hope we won't have to wait too long to see what happens. The nightclub closed in 1998 and was hit by fire in August 2007, causing more damage to the building. At the time, in 2012, a mystery buyer came forward to buy the former Zigzag Club from supermarket Sainsbury's, which had bought the building alongside the former Smokestack Pub and Cordell Shop as part of the development of its store in Swanpool Walk, which opened in 2009. A plan to flatten Zigzag and build 12 new apartments above shop and office space was then approved by Worcester City Council's planning committee way back in October 2016 with a hope that it would bring an end to the eyesore building. 
but there was no progress at the club, despite a condition in the planning decision saying that work should begin within two years due to a disagreement over Section 106 money, funds the developer has to give the council for local infrastructure. The City Council then gave the green light to start building the apartments after coming to a final agreement with the developer Peter Stiles in early 2019. The plan was hit by further delays, with demolition halted after Mr Stiles decided to sell the building. In 2019, pizza takeaway chain Domino's put forward plans to move into the neighbouring former Smokestack pub, which was also damaged by fire in 2007. And this came after a plan was approved by Worcester City. Well, now we've reached the end of this recorded edition. My thanks to Moira and to John and Alex for reading and recording. And of course, to Carol Hartle for leading our vital admin provision. We hope you've enjoyed listening and that you'll come back for more next time. So best wishes from me, Evelyn, and from all of the team. Goodbye. Bye. And now the obituaries. Margaret Mary Barker passed away peacefully at Juniper House Care Home on the 8th of June 2021, aged 98 years. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Wednesday 7th of July 2021 at 1pm. Family flowers only, please. John Charles Butterfield passed away peacefully at the Primrose Unit, Princess of Wales Hospital, on 23rd of June, aged 88. A private funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium, followed by a private internment. Family flowers only, please. Eden Dallimore died peacefully in hospital on the 21st of June 2021, aged 25 years. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Friday the 9th of July at 10.45am. No flowers by request, please. Winifred Mary, or Win Eek, formerly of Rushwick, Passed away peacefully on the 14th of June 2021, aged 88 years. Funeral service at St Andrew's Methodist Church, Pump Street, Worcester, on Thursday the 8th of July at 2pm. No flowers by request, please. Richard John Jones of Himbleton, on June the 25th, 2021 passed away peacefully with his family at his side aged 80 years. A private funeral service will be held at Huddington Church on Monday July the 12th at 11am. Due to restricted numbers this will be by invitation only, family flowers only. Basil Lamb died peacefully at his home on 17th of June 2021, aged 88 years. Funeral service at St Andrew's Church, Ombersley, on Friday the 9th of July at 2pm. No flowers by request, please.
Stuart Collins passed away suddenly on 17th of June 2021, aged 55 years. A loving husband, father, son and brother. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Monday the 5th of July at 10.45am. Invited family and friends due to Covid restrictions and family flowers only please. Sylvia Margaret Bennett sadly passed away on the 21st of June 2021, her family by her side. Devoted wife to the late Gordon, dearly loved mum to Jane and the late Tony, a wonderful grandmother and great-grandmother. Service to be held at Worcester Crematorium on 5th of July at 12.15. As Margaret disliked black, please wear bright clothing. We kindly request no flowers, but donations if desired for St Richard's Hospice. Grace Marjorie McMullen died on the 15th of June 2021, aged 92. She will be sadly missed. Service at St John the Baptist Church, Crowell, Worcestershire, on Wednesday 8th of July at 11.30, followed by interment in the churchyard. Richard Arthur Samuels, known as Dick, sadly passed away on 16th of June, aged 74 years, dearly missed by his wife June, son Neil and all family and friends. Funeral service on Tuesday 6th of July at Worcester Crematorium and donations gratefully received for the Stroke Association. <laughs> 